coming up on Economics Explored. What is the Enlightenment? Is that the movement is is about promoting intellectual autonomy, right? Not just relying on what others or testimony or what authority tells you. Welcome to the Economics Explored podcast, a frank and fearless exploration of important economic issues. I'm your host, Gene Tunney. I'm a professional economist based in Brisbane, Australia, and I'm a former Australian Treasury official. This is episode 128 on philosophy, risk, cost-benefit analysis, and the Enlightenment. This is part two of a conversation that my occasional co-host, Tim Hughes, and I had in January 2022 with University of Queensland philosophy professor Deb Brown. Part one of that conversation was broadcast in episode 123, in which we chatted with Deb about truth and critical thinking. In part two, which is in this episode, we consider some big questions around risk and public policy, particularly relating to the pandemic. Assessing government policy measures during the pandemic has been very challenging. In my view, there aren't easy answers. Basic facts are disputed and people are making different subjective assessments of what restrictions on our liberty are justifiable for public health reasons. I found this conversation with Deb really helpful in clarifying some of the important issues for me, and I'll aim to come back to the pandemic in a future episode soon with some further thoughts. Deb also helped me understand just what is meant by that critically important period in our history known as the Enlightenment. Part of the way forward out of the mess that we're in globally at the moment, in my view, surely has to be a greater appreciation and a recommitment to the values of the Enlightenment. Okay, please check out the show notes for links to materials mentioned in this episode and for any clarifications and abbreviations such as QALY, Q-A-L-Y, which stands for Quality Adjusted Life Year. That's one of the abbreviations that Deb uses in our conversation. You can find the show notes via your podcasting app or at our website, economicsexplored.com. If you sign up as an email subscriber, you can download my new ebook, Top 10 Insights from Economics. So please consider getting on the mailing list. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, then please either record them in a message via SpeakPipe, see the link in the show notes, or email me via contact at economicsexplored.com. Righto, now for our conversation with Professor Deb Brown on philosophy, risk, cost-benefit analysis, and the Enlightenment. Thanks to my audio engineer, Josh Crotz, for his assistance in producing the episode. I hope you enjoy it. I mean, one thing that I'm always conscious of is that, like as economists, we do cost-benefit analysis studies, and we try to put everything in dollar terms and then we say that, and that we do this over the life cycle of a project or over you know X number of years, 30 years, and we come to conclusions such as, well, the present value of benefits exceed the present value of costs, and therefore this is a good thing to do. But we've always got to bear in mind that there are, whole, there are some big philosophical assumptions we're making when we're doing a cost-benefit analysis. And in some cases, those assumptions are fine, um, or if we're doing a cost-benefit analysis of a bridge or a or a new ra- railway tunnel or a road, okay, well then maybe that's okay to put everything in dollar terms. But it, it's difficult in the context of the pandemic because we're dealing with people's lives, and you've got and I mean they're all they're all the issues of like how do you can you quantify that in dollar terms, and then even if you did a cost-benefit analysis, you're you, there's always there's an utilitarian assumption underlying cost-benefit analysis in economics. There's Benthamism, uh, this Benthamite approach, and and I think if you understand that as an economist, it that helps you in in understanding how much you should take out of any particular bit of analysis you do. You need to be honest about what it is, and you need to have an understanding of this. Uh, I think it's David Hume that is ought problem. I find I've been thinking a lot about that during the pandemic, and and I've been tried to be less less dogmatic or less. Maybe it's making me less confident in in saying that if you've got a particular cost benefit analysis result, then that's the right thing. That might be that's a bit of a ramble. Sorry, Deb, but do you have any thoughts on that or in in response? 
Yeah. So, um, I mean, so first of all, I mean, cost be- cost benefit analyses have their place. You know, I mean, sometimes I I wish there were more of them driving decisions decision making. You know, because sometimes I I look at decisions and think, you know, that that isn't even does isn't even valid from a cost benefit analysis. The fact of the matter is, is that there are other considerations as well. There are considerations, you know, of ethics and equity and and morality and and so on. Um, and uh, and and I I actually sort of do hold the view that that um, morality has its has its advantages and uh, and that we we only get those advantages if we aim at morality, not if we if we aim at something else, like. And I think the problem with utilitarianism is that, you know, because it focuses on the consequences and uh, maximising sort of what's perceived as utility, right, that other factors can be obscured in the process. So the pandemic is a, is a good example. I mean, I was giving, uh, I was part of a, a webinar series with the Chinese University of Hong Kong, um, which included, uh, it, you know, um, um, virologists from UQ and, you know, uh, people, so people in the medical faculty and um, uh, as well as um, people who worked in kind of biomedical ethics, which is not a specialisation of mine. So it's sort of a bit out of my league there. But but I was looking at these quali-based, uh, you know, arguments against lockdowns. And, um, and I, but I, I actually think, you know, so that there the argument was that, you know, you you should um, only lock down if the quality adjusted life years of doing so, you know, uh, from a cost benefit uh, perspective, um, uh, you know, outweigh, you know, not locking down, let's say. And and at the time, this was sort of back in 2020, and at the time it was relatively older people who were dying. So, you know, the quality adjusted life years saved by locking down, um, compared to the $11 billion a week it was costing uh, f- you know, during lockdown, you know, it looked like it wasn't justifying locking down in terms of pure, you know, monetary value. Um, but the, you know, the problem with this is that quali-based um, analyses and decision-making, they make sense in certain co- contexts. So here's, here's where I think that cost-benefit analyses do um, have a have a point, right? So if you're a hospital and you're trying to decide whether to invest in, you know, in one medical technology over another, and you've got information about how much qualies each one will save, then you should go, you know, for the one that has the highest return on investment in terms of qualies, right? But the thing is, there's a there's an implied ceteris paribus clause there, you know, all else being equal. If you're choosing between A and B, and A one gives you the big, and A sorry gives you the biggest return on investment in terms of quality, then B you should go for for A. Um, but but what was happening in the pandemic is that you know it wasn't the case that all things were were equal. So so there were certain communities who were more vulnerable than others. So not just the elderly, but also uh, migrant communities uh, in the United States. Um, it was you know. Uh, uh, African American communities and Indigenous communities who were being adversely affected by COVID, often because they're frontline workers. You know, they're often living in more crowded, you know, crowded housing, uh, and you know, all of these different reasons contributing to their more being a more vulnerable group than, say, um, you know, whites or in the US Asians. And uh, you know, I mean, and here in Australia, you know, we were seeing that. We're certainly affecting low SES communities more. And in the UK, same deal. And also in the UK, you know, we've seen recently that, you know, disabled people are more adversely affected by um, by COVID than other communities as well. And so things are not equal, right? So in those kinds of circumstances, you can't just rely on a cost-benefit analysis. You have to take into account these fundamental issues of, of equity. Yeah, there are all sorts of issues to take into account. I mean, equity is is important. So I'm trying to think how Gigi Foster, who is someone who came out and, I mean, she was against the lockdowns because of she thought it wasn't justified. You couldn't justify it with a cost-benefit analysis for the reasons you we were just talk, you describing before. And I think that, you know, Gigi is associated with that view. She, she would 
probably counter that, well, we could take that into account in our cost-benefit analysis with weights. We could, we could weight the, the loss of uh, life for you know, particular groups. We could provide more of a weight to that or the, there'd be some way you could adjust it, I'm sure she'd say. The problem is what, what I think is incredibly difficult in analysing policy during the pandemic is we just don't know. You know, early on, we just didn't know how how bad this would be, and I mean, now the, the pandemic keeps surprising us with Omicron, and uh, it, it's just incredibly difficult to know uh, what the right policy is, and we're going to have to assess this in future decades. Well, what made sense, what didn't? I think I think we also need to take into account issues of um, civil liberties, and I, I think one of the problems with lockdown as a policy, even if you did think that in a cost benefit sense it maybe it did make sense or if you took into account the effects on different groups in the community maybe you could argue it made sense but even if it did there there are people who value those those individual rights the the civil liberties and you could argue that well this was a breach of that this is something that really i don't think anyone contemplated government would do what they did during the pandemic I think it's quite it's quite extraordinary measures. I never thought governments would impose those lockdowns and stay at home orders that that they did implement. And uh, you know, they saw what happened in China. That's one view argument that we we imported this policy of lockdown from China, which is an authoritarian regime. So, depending on what your different what your values are, you could argue against lockdown because you think this is such a breach of our individual. Liberty. So, is that? Am I on the right track there, Deb? Is that an important <laughs> value to consider too? Uh, well, certainly, liberty is an important value. But the the concept of of liberty um, and the you know associated concept of a right is is not unqualified or unconditional. So, I mean, from the you know the earliest discussions of rights, um, you know, take for example John Stuart Mill, um, you know, back in the nineteenth century. Um, so you only you only have a right if the exercise of that right does not interfere with the the liberty or rights of others. Okay, so this is often referred to as Mill's harm principle. So you know, so I don't I don't have a right I don't have a right to drive on whatever side of the road I like because that will deprive you of your freedom of movement and your 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 right to life. So that's always been a constraint on the notion of freedom uh, and the, the notion of freedoms and rights um, is that you you do not you do just you just do not have a right to something if that right is going to deprive somebody else of their rights and their liberties. The interesting thing to me about this whole discussion, of, you know, around lockdowns is that we accept all sorts of um, curtailments of our freedom. You know, big. You know, so as to avoid harming others, right? So, so no, I don't remember this kind of stink about not allowing people to smoke in public places, right? So, you know, so we, you know, we ban smoking in bars and clubs and you know public places and you know buildings and so on, and we've all just sucked that up, right? <laughs> Because, and the argument was, is that people exercising their right to smoke whenever they like actually, you know, causes harm through secondhand smoking to others, right? And so can it interfere with the exercise of their rights, right? Their right, you know, to health and life and so on. And, you know, the the kind of mask mandates, um, you know, lockdowns, uh, you know, whatever might be, you know, are infringements on our, you know, on what you might think of as our freedoms, but we don't we don't have the liberty to harm others, and that's the justification for those kind of mandates. Now, it doesn't mean when you when you curtail somebody's freedom or their rights, it doesn't mean that you are you you know you are not respecting the the concept of a right or a freedom, right? Um, but you know, but as I say, right, it has to be measured against you know what are the what are the foreseeable harms here. You know, with respect to, and I think that's, I think that's very different from embracing authoritarianism, and and I think we need to keep a distinction there. Not every curtailment of our freedom means that we're subject to authoritarian uh, control, right? 
but it was interesting. I don't know whether either of you saw this um, the this wonderful publication pre-2020 by the Rockefeller Institute. Um, they do this scenario kind of planning. Um, and, and one of the scenarios that, that they discussed there is called lockstep. And they anticipate, you know, a global pandemic and, um, and what sort of behaviours it will drive. And one of the things that, that they envisage there is that in some countries it will, you know, drive, authority, you know, an acceptance of authoritarian control. And it predicts that those countries will do better in terms of managing managing the um, the you know the pandemic, but at considerable cost to the liberty of citizens or subjects in those countries, right? And that that may have you know long term consequences, you know that are not justified by the authoritarian control. It also predicted that there would be anti-authoritarian movements. Um, so you can read this document and think, oh my gosh, they were reading the tea leaves of yeah. the pandemic, you know. Because all of those sort of anti-authoritarian, anti-vax movements are also predicted as well, you know, where, where people, you know, do feel that they are suddenly being thrust under authoritarian control. Um, and that's why it's very important to distinguish between authoritarianism, you know, to not sort of operate with extremes, right, to not just yeah. think, you know, because we've, we have to wear masks in public spaces, we're heading in the direct direction, you know, of an authoritarian regime, you know. It, it, it's more it's more subtle and complicated than that. Mm. Okay, we'll take a short break here for a word from our sponsor. If you need to crunch the numbers, then get in touch with Adept Economics. We offer you frank and fearless economic analysis and advice. We can help you with funding submissions, cost-benefit analysis studies, and economic modelling of all sorts. Our head office is in Brisbane, Australia but we work all over the world. You can get in touch via our website, www.adepteconomics.com.au. We'd love to hear from you. Now back to the show. Did you have any thoughts, Tim? Well, actually, there were, there were, there's so much involved in, in, this whole, in this whole talk. We could go on for hours. Uh, on that particular one, I, I'm, I'm cool with that. There are, I mean, for instance, uh, with, the, uh, with the authoritarian um, Lockdowns, etc. It is a, a a very effective way of treating with um, you know contagious diseases and everything. So it's been around for centuries that that whole thing. It's an authoritarian uh, measure, but um, it's still very effective in uh, locking down or, or containing uh, contagious diseases. I think quarantine or cordoning off particular areas yeah, where there, there is infection. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so um, so as far as measures go, it, it was a predictable me- measure that was going to come in. But I understand and, and agree. You know, there's this lively debate around you know how long and if it was the right thing to do, etc. I, I just hope that we get good modelling from this um, for whatever comes next, because there's you know who knows what may come in the future. But uh, hopefully, we'll be better prepared for it for what we've gone through uh, with this. Oh, absolutely. Let's hope. I mean, we <laughs> certainly will be. I mean, we're yeah. I mean, we'll be talking about this and analysing this for decades. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I was just thinking this point about how we. You, you're right. We don't have a right to harm others. That that's right. So, but the issue is, I mean, what's the what level of of harm or risk or probability of uh, harm? What's the what's the threshold? Because every time we go out into the community. There's a risk that we could be involved in a traffic accident, say, and we could harm someone else. So that there's a level of risk that's assumed. I mean, look, this may be too big a question to deal with here, but <laughs> this is where I think um, th- this whole issue of the, the lockdowns—that's that's what—that's what annoys people or, or some you know, libertarians. They're thinking, well, okay, well, what's really the risk? I mean, I guess it's—I suppose I guess that the argument is that each person. Anyone breaking the rules could actually start off a cluster, and then that could grow in numbers. And I mean, this was only this is not relevant now in Australia because it's gotten out of control and it's it's out there. So that we're not going to have any more lockdowns. There's no there's there's probably no point. But in the early days, the argument was that yeah, anyone 
doing the wrong thing could actually start off a cluster and so therefore, yeah, that could affect everyone else. Okay, maybe I can see the logic there, but it, yeah, that's what I've been struggling with. What's that level of, of risk to others in the community that, that would justify a restriction on liberties? And I don't think we've got an answer to that. Has anyone been doing any thinking on, on that? Um, I, I don't know. Although I think you're exactly right that we really need to we really need to think about um, about risks here. I mean, you know, because because you're right that you know there's all sorts of things that that we do. Um, we assume normal risks because the benefits of of taking those risks um, warrant the risk, right? So it, as you say, every time we get in a car, you know, there's a risk that we you know could lose our lives or suffer serious bodily harm. Um, but, you know, but overall people agree to those risks because, you know, driving has benefits, let's say, mm. right? Maybe less so, <laughs> at, you know, as climate as climate change takes off. But, you know, but for a long time that's what, you know, really justified people in, in assuming a level, in that level of risks. Um, and so that, and the question, you know, there's been a lot of discussion. I think actually Robert Nozick had something to say about this um, and there were economists that he was drawing on as well about the difference between a normal risk and an abnormal risk, right? So, so we we allow certain levels of normal risk in a society, but but we you know we we you know we don't allow, for example, you know people to play Russian roulette, right? You know, not for any amount of money, not for any benefit, right? Um, and we regard that as as a, an abnormal risk. It's not justified, and so on. And so the question is like, where at various stages of the panic of the pandemic, you know, panic pandemic, that was an interesting clip. <laughs> where various, you know, stages of the pandemic, what kinds of risks, you know, are we actually facing here? And, and you know, and I think I think that, you know, that underlying a lot of the policy changes that we're seeing recently is just the assumption that we are moving more into that normal risk space. And, you know, because, I, you know, because I've sort of gotten tired of, of hearing about sheer numbers of people with COVID, you know, the relevant data is number, numbers of hospitalizations, numbers of deaths, deaths, you know, and hospitalizations per capita. Those are the relevant figures. If it's true, I think it's probably too early to say, but if, if we are moving more, you know, with the kind of vaccination regime into, you know, to having fewer hospitalizations per, per capita from, you know, from the, the, the pandemic, then, then, you know, that will sort of shift, shift the balance um, and lockdowns won't be as justified as they were, you know, when, when the risks were much higher, when it was, you know, a bit like playing Russian roulette, you know, um, in terms of number of people dying from the, from the pandemic. So I'm, I'm not myself a risk analyst and, you know, you, you know, in your field, you know, you're, you're kind of masters of risk analysis. So I would have to learn from you here, but conceptually, it seems to me that's the sort of space we need to be in. Oh yeah, absolutely. Uh, I haven't seen uh, an authoritative analysis along those lines yet uh, for the pandemic. Uh, hopefully, you know, I mean, I'm sure economists will be turning their minds to that. I mean, I, there have been some, um, I mean, Judy Foster's done a, a cost-benefit analysis of of a, of a sort uh, for Victorian for Victoria. She presented that to the Victorian Parliamentary Inquiry. Uh, Gigi and some of her colleagues have written a book on the Great Panic. It, it, it's rather you could consider it polemical in a way. Um, it, it, but we we do need to uh, have some sort of uh, authoritative analysis along those lines because these are big questions. Uh, about uh, yeah, just how do we manage these things and what regulations are acceptable? Uh, what what level of risk are we willing to bear? I'm going to have to look up that that work by Nozick. That that sounds it seems to ring a bell. Um, but I'll look it up. The normal risk versus abnormal risk. That looks like it could be highly relevant. Yeah, it's a it's yeah. I might it's a chapter in Anarchy, State, and Utopia, as as I recall. Although um, it's been a while since I looked at it. Okay, I'll uh, I'll look that up. Um, yeah, yeah. It's, it's and I'm seen... trying to remember. I'm trying to remember the name of the economist, whether it was French or something beginning with F. I'm not sure. Yeah, there was an economist on whom he was. I think you know, drawing in terms of that risk, he was sort of particularly interested in compensation. So when is compensation 
warranted for risky behaviour. And, you know, and of course, being very interested in, in uh, you know, I mean, he's a libertarian, right? So, so he's sort of interested in, in uh, you know, when it, is it ever justified to restrict people's freedom to take certain kinds of risks um, and when is compensation warranted and so on. That's what I recall from that anyway. <laughs> okay, I'll, yeah, I'll look it up because that may be of uh, of interest. I may try and cover that on the podcast in the future. We'll probably have to wrap up soon given how long much of your time <laughs> will take it, Deb. Sorry. De- no, Deb, no, did I'm you... having a ball. Oh, very I... good. <laughs> uh, okay, oh, well. <laughs> I was just going to talk about the media literacy yeah. um, issue because I, I think in terms of the, the critical thinking project, um, that's that's a massive area and, and I've been shocked learning from colleagues at um, Queensland University of Technology and University of Western Sydney, in particular Tanya Notley there, who's a specialist on uh, youth media literacy. I'm kind of shocked at the the data coming out about, about, you know, not just the general public, but also sort of academics capabilities in terms of, um, you know, fact-checking and checking the sources of media articles and doing being able to do lateral searches uh, and so on, you know, to, to see what different sites say about the same, um, you know, the, the same article. And I'm also shocked, you know, that, you know, student that, sorry, um, the youth, right, uh, get most of their news entirely from social media. Right? There's very little engagement with mainstream media. Um, very little engagement with credi- credible news and media. Media, sorry. So I, I think this, you know, this is another the kind of um, lack of media literacy is another kind of pandemic, and and it really does contribute substantially to that culture of of confusion and mistrust. I, I love the, I love you said that, Deb. So because that was what I was going to uh, come back to. Because way back, you know, and we, we've touched on it with uh, intention and trust. And I think it's such a big area, um, and you've, you've gone straight to it, which is great. And how do we trust the news sources? And and this isn't um, a present day problem. This has always been a thing for everyone throughout the ages. You know how do you how do you trust your 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 source of any kind of news, whether it be from a person or from a, a, an agency or whatever it may be? And, and so. With, with that also comes a limited amount of time that we may have as individuals to make our minds up on these different um, these, these different things that come up to us where we form an opinion and any opinion is only as good as the information it's based on. Um, so if we've got good information, we're going to have a, a reasonably good opinion. The more varied information, again, better opinion. So all of these, um, these uh, things, and like you're touching on, for instance, uh, people getting their information information from just one source is going to be biased or maybe not a, a full picture. There, there are all these different ethical sort of uh, problems with, you know, we, we form our opinions um, and, and we find our trusted news sources. And of course, there, there are more and more coming out all the time. Where, can, where does this sit in with uh, critical thinking and to try and do this in a in a, in a reasonably quick period of, of time, knowing that most people only have a certain period of uh, a certain amount of time in their day to give towards um, forming an opinion on something in the news cycle. How can we do this better? Right. Well, um, so, you know, I mentioned earlier, we have this collaboration with the Impact Centre. Yeah. Uh, which, you know, works with um, office courses and critical thinking to, to school students. And, um, and last year, one of my colleagues uh, who was the UNESCO Professor of Journalism at the University of Queensland, Peter Grester. Do you know Peter Grester, right? The yes. foreign correspondent, um, you know, with that, uh, yeah, that um, awful experience in, in Egypt. Uh, so he approached me and he said, you know, I really want to work with schools to try and, you know, get a kind of journalism media literacy course going with schools. And, you know, I know you have all these collaborations with the Department of Education and, and he and I, together and other colleagues as well, and colleagues in the, um, you know, collaborators in the Impact Centre, um, put together this course on um, media literacy and journalism. And it's offered to senior secondary students. And effectively what they're doing is they're learning about media literacy, but they're also learning it in conjunction with critical thinking. So often when you look at media liter- literacy courses, they often 
concern tips and tricks for yeah. and tricks for checking sources, right? Finding out who the sponsor is of a of a of a page, yeah. um, doing lateral searches, um, but adding a layer of critical uh, thinking over that. Um, what you get is you you get students thinking about how their thinking is framed yeah. within within an uh, an article. So what gets to be in the headline? The headline shapes how you think how you'll think about the rest of the article. Um, how is the information presented? What's up front, right? Is there an argument developed? Is there an analysis, right? What justification is there for the things that are said in the article? So getting students to interrogate an argument look within those practices of justification. And then in conjunction with that media literacy course, and, um, and there were, you know, teachers at the Impact Centre, particularly um, Dr. Luke Zafir and and Dave Thornton, who put together a fantastic course for, for school students, developing all those critical thinking and media literacy skills. It, you know, it's just amazing. In conjunction with that, these students also develop their own article, which is, um, which will, you know, uh, and they work, sorry, they work with journalists from in Queensland, which is uh, Queensland's, you know, an independent news service uh, in Queensland. Um, and has a commitment to public, you know, public service journalism. So journalists from in Queensland work with students in the in the media academy to basically construct um, articles for publication in in Queensland. So if you look at the in Queensland website, they've got a media academy tab, and those are all the articles that were written by students in school. Fantastic opportunity for students to learn how journalism works, right, how to, yeah. you know, it's actually produced and to think critically about the way in which information is presented in an article. And I think, I mean, another big problem within media is that, you know, if you haven't got a kind of blatantly biased media outlet, right, on the right or on the left, whatever it might be, you've got this kind of, you know, bizarre, you know, assumption that all you need to do is to provide a balance of opinions, right, and you've done your duty mm. <laughs> in critical analysis, right? There's, well, first of all, there's very little analysis. Often it's just, you know, kind of, you know, these putting together these, you know, polarised opinions on yeah. an yeah. issue. Um, and this assumption that as a journalist, you you know, you have to stay, stay neutral. I mean, neutrality will come through if you actually do a critical analysis, right? You don't, you know, you don't need to sort of, and I think that sort of presenting balanced opinions, you know, just just contributes to the confusion out there, right? So people think, you know, well, there's this opinion and that opinion and everybody, you know, has got a different opinion so I can believe whatever I like. Yeah. You know, no. <laughs> well, actually, one of the things with this, because I think because we seem to, um, uh, which isn't a bad thing, but we look for certainty where we can. So we're always looking for definitives and uh, absolutes. We, you know, we like to know this is this is correct and that's wrong, etc. Whereas, of course, the reality is um, there's a spectrum of likelihood or possibilities with so many things that we look at. And I love that um, in the article, uh, the ABC article, uh, you, you mentioned um, that uh, one of the keys was being comfortable with doubt and uncertainty and feeling free to change position if evidence or new information required it, which we touched on earlier. But it's just such a um, uh, such a great statement, I think, in allowing people to be okay being not so, not so sure. Or this is the best yet. This is, you know, at the moment, this is the best um, information that's out there. It's going to change, and you know, being open to that change and to changing opinions when you know when things evolve. You know, so I think that's a really uh, you know when when we talk about polarization, quite often that's because people have found a certainty. Maybe too soon, or without uh, you know researching it very much, whatever the issue may be, uh, and and then being um, sort of loyal to that certainty, regardless of what other information comes through, uh, which of course is a problem. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think being able to divest one's ego from yeah. you know from the argumentative work is very very important, but it's very difficult for people to do because their identity is so much bound up with what what they think and what they believe. That's right, and so to change their mind would be affecting, you know, it's a decision then to change their identity um, uh, or tribe even, you know, like uh, it can be 
part of the group that you're in or the environment that you're in, uh, which you identify with. Um, and so the incentive to change opinion or to change mind or to hear different uh, views, um, of course, is is not a welcome one. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that in collaborative reasoning environments, if they're run effectively, you do see that behaviour shift because the, the focus of the group is is on the on the the pointed issue on the topic you yeah. know and if you sort of don't allow people to just make assertions but to actually back that up with reasons you know very soon you start to see them giving and taking reasons where not just giving out reasons but taking them standing corrected um, and you, you do see, I mean in children you see that behavior shift remarkably quickly. Um, and and then you know something happens to us and we we end up you know terrified to change our minds. What, where did it all go wrong? <laughs> yeah. So with this uh, with the critical thinking project, um, uh, teachers and students, uh, is it also open to anybody who might want to get in touch and uh, and learn from this? You might have mentioned this before, so apologies if you've mentioned it. <laughs> um, but is this open to everybody? Is there, is there something there for everyone? Because everyone I think could benefit from it. <laughs> or do I get to do some product placement here? That you do. <laughs> well, you are, you are God after all today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Well, I'll fund my I'll fund my project appropriately then. <laughs> um, yeah. So so we so you know the of course working with the Department of Education that's restricted to government schools, um, but but we also uh, we we also have um, contracts with um, with you know other schools. Uh, Peter and I have both done corporate training, for example, in critical thinking. I had a, had a wonderful time in, in India with, uh, with FinTech Capital um, of the Tata Group, you know, Tata's biggest company in India. Yeah, and yeah. Had a wonderful session doing critical thinking with them. It was, it was really fun. Um, and uh, so, you know, so we, we've, you know, we've had, like I said, we've got contracts, had done work with Singapore and, UCLA, um, University of California, Los Angeles, uh, they actually included the media literacy and journalism course in their critical thinking summer program last year. And it was a huge hit. Uh, and I think, you know, so I think that course uh, could easily be made available to anyone. And I think it, I think it should, you know, I mean, this is not just for kids. We all need this. Yeah, for sure. You know, the other the other issue that, you know, the other issue that's sort of driving a lot of misinformation is often it's just the unavailability of peer-reviewed um, publications. So, so, you know, the more open, open source um, publishing, open access publishing we can do, I would, you know, I would love it if university libraries, you know, were open to the public again, not just, you know, in coming onto campus, but actually the online edition. But, you know, there's all sorts of issues there around, um, you know, publishing as an industry as well, right? Um, so that's what sort of impedes that. But the more information we can make accessible and quality information we can make it accessible, the better off we'd all be. Yeah, you've got those big journal companies uh, such as Elsevier yeah. uh, and uh, is it Springer? I'm trying to remember, but they make uh, millions or hundreds of millions or whatever out of uh, university libraries paying for subscriptions to journals. It's... Uh, yeah, it's a bit of a racket, arguably. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, so uh, that yeah, it's it's very strange. You know, we do all the work, right? The writing, <laughs> reviewing, <laughs> we do all the hard yards, and then yeah. patients. Uh, <laughs> what business model that one? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Okay, I think we're gonna have to wrap up in a minute. But this has been great. Uh, I did have one question. One thing that I, I, I we're hearing a lot about the need for these enlightenment values. I mean, more people are talking about the enlightenment and the age of reason because there's this recognition that we've maybe we've lost touch with that. And then I know you're an expert on Descartes and I mean, he's associated with rationalism. Is rationalism, like how does that fit in with the enlightenment and the age of reason? Is the, are the, is the age of reason the same as the enlightenment? Is rationalism, a is that a very specific part of the age of reason? Is that just a, a hyper or an over a, a total reliance on reason, whereas the enlightenment something broader. Is it? Is there a way for us to understand understand this, Deb, or is it just such a big question that it, we, it's not really answerable in this uh, context in in this podcast? Yeah, no, no, it's a it's a great question, uh, and I'm all for uh, you know a renaissance in the age of reason. 
Um, so, so I think those terms are often, you know, often used interchangeably, age of reason and enlightenment. And a lot of people trace the Enlightenment as beginning really with Descartes, um, the publication in 1637 of his discourse on method, which really was sort of that, you know, introduction to the new method, relying on reason uh, and needing, you know, yourself to, to, um, to be intellectually autonomous, right? So, you know, as opposed to intellectually heteronymous where you're relying on authority and it was... The, the enlightenment was connected up with this metaphor of light that permeates the discussions in the, the 17th and 18th century. Um, so, you know, Descartes, you know, appeals to the, the natural light and distinguishes that from the teachings of nature, right? Nature might teach you that, that things are hot and cold, but, um, but, you know, if you examine them from a scientific point of view, uh, it's more likely that, you know, cold, that heat is certain, you know, a motion of molecules and cold is nothing at all. So the light of reason will revise what nature teaches you, if you like, and one should be guided by the light of reason, not by what one, what seems, seems to one to be true on the basis of sensory apprehension. And, you know, it was, um, I mean, it was, the light metaphor was common. So you get, you know, Lumiere in French and you get um, Aufklarung, which means sort of clarity or light in German, as, as being, you know, uh, in opposition to Aristotelian scholastic philosophy, which dominated um, philosophy, particularly in the schools and universities up to the end of the, the 16th century. And it was perceived as being, you know, doctrinaire and authoritarian, you know, so even though a lot of original work went on in the Middle Ages, there was always this deference to authorities, you know, as Aristotle said, as Augustine said, and so on. And with the advent of the scientific revolution um, that begins in the late 16th century with people like Copernicus and um, Kepler and Galileo, you know, sort of developing a, you know, a heliocentric view of the universe and really starting to develop this new mechanical scientific um, you know, theory and doing a lot more sort of experimental work and observational work using telescopes and, and so on. Um, you know, that, that old sort of doctrinaire, the categories of Aristotelian scholastic philosophy were thought to be mysterious, occult, and didn't fit with the, the new science. Also coming into the 17th century, you've got, you've got the European humor, humor, so humanist tradition, right, this reclamation of ancient texts, uh, particularly the Stoics, but also the skeptics as well. Um, and both, you know, both uh, Latin and Greek texts um, and that revival of kind of classical as opposed to scholastic uh, philosophy and all that sort of feeds into the 17th century. And then, then you get Descartes who thinks that, that you can't just, we can't just keep going with philosophy. Philosophy has to, has to kind of catch up with these revolutions in science and also in engineering as well. Um, and it needs a it needs a new face and it needs a new method, right? Um, and it needs to be grounded in reason because only that will sort of, in a way, fit the kind of mechanical, mathematical science that 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 um, you know is is uh, is really taking over the whole scientific space. And Descartes, of course, is also motivated to um, to to ground that new science. Uh, in a system of philosophy that's not antithetical to re religion, but is really basing its connection to religion on reason, right? And I think when people talk about the age of reason, this is what they mean, is they mean a sort of rational foundation for religion as opposed to faith, right? And that goes all the way through to Thomas Paine's book, The Age of Reason, which is really like a rationalist kind of attempt to sort of ground um, religion uh, on on reason uh, as well. Um, but yeah, so the so the Enlightenment is sort of set in opposition to the so-called Dark Ages, you know, which is a term that seems to be coined by Petrarch, who's um, one of these um, European, uh, you know, humanists in the 14th century, even though he's embedded in a medieval context, but, you know, but he's sort of arguing against this kind of authoritarian um, uh, you know, aspect of philosophy in that period. Um, and so, you know, so when you get to the 17th and 18th century, you've got a new method, you've got this method of doubt, you've got scepticism being taken seriously again. 
uh, and that skepticism becomes part of the method. And again, that's just, you know, subjecting what you believe to doubt and, and upholding the highest standards of reasoning and evidence. But, you know, but it wasn't sort of, it wasn't as if it was all rationalist. I don't actually like the division between rationalism and empiricism myself because the so-called rationalists like Descartes and Spinoza and Leibniz, um, Newton, right? You know, they, these are often Boyle. These are people who are doing experimental philosophy and often the empiricists, so the people like, you know, Barclay and Locke and Hume and so on are often relying on, you know, uh, philosophical reasoning as well, not just sort of observation and induction. And of course, Hume famously problematizes the the very inductive method of science. Anyway, you know, so so those kind of binary categories are not really helpful. But but I think you know, in a way, Kant kind of encapsulates it in his essay. You know, what is the Enlightenment? Is that the movement is is about promoting intellectual autonomy, right? Not just relying on what others or testimony or what authority tells you, but, you know, applying the, you know, the methods of reasoning and analysis so that your own beliefs are on the securest foundation they can possibly be. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's a great um, explanation of that, Deb. I was just thinking not trusting don't necessarily trust authority. And this is where we're getting into problems nowadays because we've got people who are thinking, oh, well, I'm doing my own research and so, you know, Fauci says this, and but I'm doing my own research, but often it's on the internet. Well, it's it's on the net and it's it could be some, the source might not be that accurate and you could argue that maybe they haven't thought enough about the reliability of what they're looking at uh, in to to justify their uh, dismissal of what mu- the certain authorities such as the CDC or or in our country the uh, what different state health uh, uh, chief health officers are saying so that I mean there is I guess this is where it's challenging because there is this value there is value in being skeptical and you know this this is an important part of of uh, of scientific method it's it's being skeptical but then the yeah the challenge is um, you know, sometimes there there is something valid being said by some of these authorities, and you can take that skepticism too far, particularly if you're not relying on you know good information. If you're not if you're not fully embracing that critical thinking, and you're thinking critically about your the the information you're getting, the points of view you're putting across. So that that just occurred to me then when you talked about the the importance of of being skeptical and and not necessarily uh, deferring to authority. I thought that was a really good point. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, my you know my husband and I spend uh, each morning looking at World Meter. You know, <laughs> that's what passes for fun nowadays. <laughs> <laughs> Let's have a cup of tea and see how the virus is doing, <laughs> darling. You know, um, but but we are. I mean, in general, I'm a little frustrated just that you often can't get the data. You know, I think there's there's an issue that you know maybe a lot of people are not going to be able to even interpret the data. And that's, you know, certainly a problem. And that's why people need, you know, everybody needs some training in statistics and critical thinking. But, you know, but there's a lot of data that you just can't get, you know, like this data. I want to know hospitalizations. I want to know, you know, deaths. I don't want to just, and, and, you know, and then there's also this issue about how much of this is being reported, right? Um, but, you know, but but make more data, make more information available. That's sort of one thing. Um, and then there is also this, you know, this question of, of trust, right? So, you know, who, who can you trust in this, in this context? Um, and, you know, one of the, I guess, the most important questions to ask is who has a vested interest in a certain kind of outcome being reported? I mean, I'm happy to trust Fauci because I don't think that he has any vested interest in in this. You know, I'm less I'm less inclined to trust somebody you know who who I think is spinning a, a yarn because they're only interested in you know in being you know reelected or making their political party look good, right? Um, so you know, and so so you know, like that's an important question to always ask about any source. Uh, and then just kind of, you know, you do have to do those lateral searches, right? What, how is this being reported in these different, you know, by these different organisations? What are their interests? What, you know, who's sponsoring this page and so on? But you're right, it's a minefield. And the more information 
that there is, you know, out there that, you know, that isn't, um, uh, you know, that is just sort of, you know, polarised and politicised and all that. It just, it's just noise that interferes with being able to give an, an accurate assessment of the situation. Absolutely. Okay, Deb, that's been great. I think we've got to wrap up there. We've taken so much of your time and uh, we're, oh, I've got so much tape here to, uh, I'll have to think about how I, uh, whether I release it as a whole episode or I might have to split it up in two. So Maybe I'll, six parts, six part <laughs> six series. Part series. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, you know. It's just, Not at I'm, all. I'm, I'm just not getting. I'm just not getting out enough. You know, this concept <laughs> getting out, and I'm just so excited. I got a bit carried away. Not <laughs> at all. Oh, that's great. We I mean, could completely carry on because it is fascinating, and they are very big topics. So, um, really appreciate um, you know the 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 care you've put into the responses there, Deb. Yeah, thanks so much. Well, Deb, uh, we'll uh, yeah, really enjoyed uh, chatting with you, and uh, I'll put links to as much of. The material that you mentioned in the show notes, so people can can find that, and uh, yeah, really uh, valued your uh, your perspectives and your, and your great knowledge of uh, philosophy, which um, yeah, it's given us a lot, or given me a lot to think about, and uh, and a lot for Tim and me. I'm sure we'll be chatting about this uh, a lot in the future. These issues that came up today, and that's the thing. Like they are, um, they're they're big issues that remain big uh, no matter where. Uh, where you are in history um, and uh, important uh, important questions. Okay. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed your questions and it was such a great conversation. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure. Professor Deb Brown from University of Queensland, thanks so much. Thanks, Deb. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Okay, that's the end of this episode of Economics Explored. I hope you enjoyed it. If so, please tell your family and friends and leave a comment or give us a rating on your podcast app. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, you can feel free to send them to contact at economicsexplored.com and we'll aim to address them in a future episode. Thanks for listening. Until next week, goodbye.